Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, where everybody is hiding after last week's elections. I'm Andrew Harrison and today we'll be looking at more of the fallout from those votes, who shot themselves in the foot, Starmer, Rayner or all of them, and are Labour going to waste yet another parliamentary term on infighting? Plus, we're allegedly on the brink of the biggest economic revival since the end of the Second World War. But is it going to land equally? Or will we end up perpetuating the same old inequalities? And we're going to look at why the Five Eyes International Security Network is in trouble. And whether we should stop trying to transfer power and prosperity out of London and let it expand to become a world megacity that benefits the whole country. All that and more on today's Bunker. It's a huge and busy week, so let's get straight to it and meet the panel. Returning to the bunker for the first time in ages, welcome to the Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Fambole. Hey, Miata, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you back. Um, So we're going to be doing these elections in detail later, but I I noticed that you tweeted that, and I'm quoting here, if the political fight over red wall seats results in a cross-party consensus to to reject free market trickle-down economics, that would be a good thing. Is that going to happen, do you think? Has faith in trickle-down evaporated on both sides? Yeah, look, that, that's me trying to find my silver lining in it all. Um, but but I, I, I generally think that the politics of trying to convince Red Wall voters that the Conservatives won't disappoint them and the politics of Labour trying to show them that they aren't going to take them for granted will force a rethink of a model that, you know, the hope was you grow some parts of the country and everyone will do well. Uh, and that's clearly not been the case. And both, you know, People, communities, but places have been hugely left behind with that model. So it feels like there is a calibration. How deep it goes, only time will tell. But we have the roots of something. It's weird that the era of trickle-down economics uh, was actually an era of trickle-up economics on every useful measure. Do you think that the Conservatives are sincere in in all the levelling-up stuff? Because you hear it as a buzzword all the time. But is there any, I mean, I, I sort of search in vain for any actual evidence that it's happening. You hear like, well, we're going to do free ports and that's not much else. So I think it hasn't been very deep rooted. So I think up to now, it's basically been a slogan, a sentiment. When you look at what's coming out of government, when you sort of talk to government departments, there's no there's no meat on it. Uh, so they don't actually know what it means in practice, how they would do it, what that means for policy, what that means for investment. But I think they're serious that they want to do it because the politics demands it. And I think what we're about to see going into the summer, the autumn, as we as the economy opens up, will be a big push to try to give it definition. In the end, the biggest challenge will be you cannot level up on the cheap. It will require further public investment. And I think the fight that has to be had is with the prime minister that in the end doesn't really care about the public finances and would much rather invest in a chancellor that's far more orthodox. And we've seen that by the way he's, he's constructed budgets. So the big fight is you can do everything you want, but you've got to put money behind it. And I'm not sure that that fight has been won yet. Sunak Johnson, 2022, put it in your diaries. Right. Also joining us, we have former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi. How are things in the um, in the green wall of uh, Gloucestershire? Well, yes. Yeah, so uh, the Greens did very well in Stroud District Council and in other places, as you might expect, the true blue Tories held on. So uh, probably representative of the wider country. I have a security desk question for you. Two doctors who saved uh, Alexei Navalny at that hospital in Omsk have died, and a third one has now disappeared on a hunting trip. This is an astonishing coincidence. Why is it so dangerous to be a doctor in Russia, Arthur? Well, uh, you you may well ask, and, and I'm I'm uh, 
reminded of the uh, the extraordinary um, phone call that Alexei Navalny did when he called up one of the FSB assassins, pretending to be a sort of uh, one of Putin's apparatchiks. And, and the guy sort of more or less gave the whole game away. And I suppose they were furious that their cunning plan was thwarted. But uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary and incredibly sinister story. Yes, it's enormously depressing and, and kind of Navalny's networks has shut itself down, hasn't it, out of fear for their own security? Yes, and in a way that it's one wonders now whether, you know, his extraordinarily brave decision to come back to Russia has in the end proved a bit of an own goal because maybe he can't actually achieve what he wants to achieve just because of the levels of sheer brutality and oppression. But then had he been outside Russia, it's hard to imagine that he would have had much impact. So it's, it's very few choices. Completing today's panel, it's Alex Andreev, writer, commentator, cook, actor, singer, and probably future leader of the Labour Party, the way things are going. Hello, Alex, how are you? <laughs> From your lips. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Make a note of it. You heard it here first. You were on our fairly funereal post-election Zoom for Oh God, What Now on Friday. But uniquely among the panel, you said you're feeling rather hopeful. Can you expand on that? Has the weekend left you feeling more or less hopeful than you were on Friday? Or was it just no, the no. cocktails talking? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm genuinely quite chipper. Look, as as an actor and a Greek, <laughs> I, like, I like my tragedy. I understand my dramatic arcs. So... Um, the point I was making of Friday was that this isn't a fight between Johnson and Starmer for now. It's a fight between Johnson and Johnson. I mean, between Johnson and himself, not the pharmaceutical <laughs> Not those guys. <laughs> he is, in my view, someone who regularly, when everything is going well, blows his life up. We all know people like him. The more confident and secure he feels, the more he will overreach. It is the fate of that kind of hubris and arrogance to end in failure. It might be next week or next month or in two years' time, but mark my words, the person who undoes Boris Johnson will be Boris Johnson. And in that sense, the more secure and uh, invulnerable he feels, the more likely he is to misstep. Does that mean Britain is Marina Wheeler or Petronella Wyatt? (laughs) Is that who we are now? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get a settlement out of the. <laughs> I got to ask you, what what do you make of the electoral reforms in gigantic quotes in the in the Queen's speech? Voter ID, first past the post, mayoral elections, no more fixed term parliaments. It's quite brazen, isn't it? They, we, you can't lump them all together. Okay, so mm-hmm. the fixed term. Parliament Act is a garbage piece of legislation and should be done away with. It may signal that they're going to go for an early election, which is worrying, but it's still a really poor piece of legislation that has caused no end of trouble. So that should go. Now, in a country with an ID system like Greece, bringing the ID to the polling centre is natural. In a country without an ID system, It is a method of voter suppression. So I'm really not sure about that one. And as far as changing the mayoral election system, we should be changing the general election system to bring it closer to the much saner mayoral election system rather than the other way around. So I really don't understand that one. 
So let's go straight to these elections, which continue to reverberate and give me a headache, reminding us that if there's one thing Labour hates, it's Labour. After a grim set of results, including the loss of Hartlepool, eight councils and over 300 seats, Keir Starmer's reshuffle did not go according to plan. The firing, then promotion of Deputy Leader Angela Rayner led many on the left to claim that she was being used as a scapegoat for Labour's poor performance, despite Starmer saying he took full responsibility for the results. Rayner will be publishing her self-help book, How to Get Fired Upwards, very soon. Meanwhile, Rachel Reeves is replacing Annalise Dodds as Shadow Chancellor, and Dodds is taking Rayner's old post at the party chair. Alex, firstly, what did you make of the Rayner episode? I mean, this was just a blizzard of horrible briefings and, you know, notifications that she's going to be sacked, and then she isn't. Now she's shadowing Michael Gove in a role that's arguably more high profile. As you know, I like nothing more than speculating. It's the political equivalent of gossiping. Okay, so one of three things happened, all right? Either what happened was exactly what was going to happen in the first place, but sources leaked information selectively to undermine Starmer's reshuffle. So that's option one. Option two is that Rayner was going to be sacked and she briefed to stir and benefited from the unexpectedly strong reaction with a promotion. The third option, and this is my favorite House of Cards style (laughs) theory, is that Someone else who was going to be sacked, for instance, Lisa Nandy or John Ashworth, they were both very, very widely touted as being reshuffled out, leaked selectively to create so much heat that it would be impossible for Starmer to go for a more extensive reshuffle. And I, I kind of fancy that last one. It's you and your dramatic arcs again, isn't it? That's what you want. (laughs) How do you think Rayner is emerged from this? Is it actually, has she emerged more powerful than before, like Obi-Wan Kenobi? A little bit, I guess. Uh, I mean, she, as an elected member of the Shadow, uh, as the only other elected member of the Shadow Cabinet, I guess she has a a powerful position already. Um, You know, plus, she's Northern, she's a woman. It's just really bad optics. So... Um, my sense is that she was always going to be uh, sort of reshuffled to a fairly prominent position rather than done away with. But I I guess we'll never know until, you know, in 10 years' time when someone publishes their diaries. That's going to be in about eight weeks on today's uh, political (laughs) timetable. Do you think uh, Starmer's going to regret wasting time and capital on this reshuffle when there were actually a handful of good things to focus on over the weekend? You know, there were some mayoral gains, there were some council gains. It wasn't all catastrophe. And in the end, the weekend was just, you know, Starmer, Rainer, Rainer, Starmer. I I think the way the narrative unfolded with all the bad results coming first, he was snookered. I don't think he had a choice. If he hadn't taken some sort of action and instead sort of gone to Wales to bask in the glory of the better results, all the headlines would have been that he's in denial and has no plan for fixing things. So I I think the die was cast by the order in which things unfolded, which turned into a really firm media narrative that this had been a disaster for Labour, which meant he had to do something. Yeah, so what what did you take away from the election results? Does does the narrative that the working class has just definitively rejected Labour, does that hold water, do you think? No, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And I think the three things that I took away from it is first, the long shadow of Brexit. 
I think mm. the dynamics of that are still playing in our politics. And as that Brexit vote shakes out, because uh, we, we didn't really know where that Brexit vote would go. Would it go back to Labour? Would it go to the Conservatives? It's shaking out now. And I think part of that is what we saw. I think the second thing is, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom for Labour. You know, really strong story to tell in Wales, a really strong story to tell with the mayoral candidates, but also in authorities like Salford, authorities like Preston. And actually the golden thread, I think, that runs through a lot of those is they had a clear vision, they had a clear story. You know, you listen to uh, Andy Burnham's electoral pitch. It was about changing the nature of the local economy. It was about tackling inequality. It was about greening the economy. There was a really powerful story that they were telling and an alternative mm. way of running the economy for their communities that seemed to resonate. So it's like, if you've got a story to tell, if you have a vision, if you've got a pitch, it kind of cuts through. And then I think the third thing for me, the, the big take home, was that the progressive vote is split. You know, in the mm. end, the country, if the Brexit dynamic is playing out, the country is 50-50. Unfortunately for Labour, let's put it, on the kind of progressive side, it's split on three ways. With the death of the Brexit party, there's just dominance on the right by the Conservatives, which will always deliver an electoral majority. I think that's something that the progressive parties are going to grapple with. But th- those are my three takeaways uh, from the weekend. So Starmer replaced Annalise Dodds-Shadachaza with Rachel Reeves. You're an economist. You know economics. Where is this going to push the party economically? What, 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 what's Reeves all about? Very, very good question. We've worked with uh, Rachel. I think possibly Annalise's Dodd's um, instincts were a bit more the kind of radical side of the economic spectrum. Um, but I think the things that Rachel has been consistently talking about over the last two years is the foundational economy, uh, the everyday economy, uh, how you transform that uh, so that it improves people's lives and improves their communities. So I expect to see a lot more of that. I think the story she will try and tell is one about making the economy rooted in people and work for people, which I think is a good thing. I have a feeling that they will that they, they will look across to the US and essentially see that as a credible path to economic transformation. Um, if Biden's doing it, surely it's not crazy or radical or Mm. unimaginable for Labour to do it. Mm. So uh, I suspect that there will be a lot of the Biden playbook, build the economy from the bottom and the middle out, build on the foundations, invest in not just the hard kit, but also the soft social infrastructure. I think that's where where she will lean, but only time will tell. So, I mean, by by that, by the foundational economy, do you mean sort of actual investment in skills? Do you mean investment in infrastructure and and businesses can can it because for, for those of us who are not anywhere near as economically literate as you what what exactly would that mean where the robber met the road as it were yeah so the, the the sort of thesis around the foundational economies that um in if you like traditionally we thought where, where are the growth economies um in a place we tend to put our money into you know high tech or fast growing um sectors the sectors that you need in every part of the country and that's both from if you like sectors like social care uh, through to some of the retail sectors that at the moment tend to be pretty low skilled, low paid, but they employ huge amounts of people. Um, and there's been no push to think about how you build up those sectors, how you actually create better jobs in them. That strand says the everyday economy, the stuff that we all take for granted, but that makes our communities uh, and our, you know, our areas work, that mean that there are jobs everywhere. Are, it needs thought, it needs attention, it needs investment, as well as how you upskill people so the the jobs in those sectors are better paid jobs that have some sort of progression. And I suspect we'll see more of that from her. 
the last 48 hours have been pretty wounding for Starmer, though. Do, do you think his authority of, as leader is damaged? I think it is. And I think even, you know, his supporters and advocates think it has been damaged. And actually not because of the election. I think the election they could have squared away. I think it's a shambles afterwards because his one thing has been competence, has been a level head, has been authority, credibility. And I think the way in which they kind of responded in quite a panicked, knee-jerk, shambolic you know, even the reshuffle, the, the, just the whole nonsense of it was, you know, people criticised the reshuffle that Jeremy had and said it was shambolic. It was like late in the night, like all everything that they said about that reshuffle we saw this weekend. And I think his brand has been really damaged. You know, the, the, the thing that was, you know, he's not he's not a charismatic leader, but he doesn't pretend to be. But he's a grown up and he's got a level head and he's a smart guy and he's competent. Like that was his thing. And I think it's taken a bit of trashing this weekend. You know, I, I don't think it's irre- irreparable, but he's got he's got to do a lot of work. Um, so there's work with the party, but he's also got to do a lot of work to restore faith in 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 the brand that he was selling. Arthur, we've spent almost the entire post-election period, which feels like about 100 years, even though it's only three days, talking about <laughs> Labour and Starmer and not about Boris Johnson, which is probably exactly what Boris Johnson wants. I mean, he just wants you to think about that giant inflatable thing outside the Hartlepool polling station, which actually looked more like Joe Johnson than Boris Johnson. How do these results change Johnson's plans and options? Well, I think what they do is they confirm that the shift in the 2019 election of you know, conservative votes moving into sort of working class districts in the north of England, you know, it confirms that shift. And what it also confirms for him is that although they've lost a bit of ground in the south, uh, you know, broadly in more remain voting wealthier places, they're still holding their own there. And, And so I guess at the moment, you know, it confirms the sort of populism, culture war, talk a good game about levelling up and keep going on about Brexit, That that's going to keep delivering for them. Do you think it also confirms that the sleaze that we were so enraged about two weeks ago just hasn't stuck at all? I mean, today we've this revelation that there's now an investigation going on into this mustique holiday that he and Carrie Simmons took and who paid for it. Is, is Hartlepool just this card that can be chucked on the table? Yes, but Hartlepool. Well, I think I'm always reminded of what uh, Dominic Cummings said about all the controversy around the lie that uh, 350 million quid was going every week to the EU. And his point was that even all the coverage which says that this isn't true, it's a lie, is still helpful because for a lot of people, all they hear is 350 million. And I think for a lot of people who like Boris Johnson, all they hear is, well, you know, the poor guy, he works so hard, he's our prime minister, why is everyone giving him a hard time? So, People who already have a negative view of him, that's just confirmed. But, you know, we're never going to vote for him anyway. We try not to talk too much about Scotland and Wales on the podcast without actual Scottish and Welsh people to hand, because sometimes it goes over a bit badly. But Labour won Wales handsomely. The SNP did well in Scotland, not enough to get an absolute majority. Has has this election essentially just rewarded incumbents, wherever they may be, who can show a, a level of basic competence? I think that is a very big factor. I think if you look at the timing, the fact that, the really bad phase of the pandemic is happily seems to be behind us. And we're in the phase where more and more people can celebrate the fact that they've had an injection. Whether you're in Wales, Scotland, or England, you think, well, I'm happy and I'm prepared to sort of reward the government for doing that at least. And I think there's a bit of a sort of British fair play thing going on here where you say, 
well, you know, they've all worked so hard. We, we should we should reward them for that. The Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance between Britain, America, Australia, Canada and New Zealand appears to be in trouble over the issue of China's treatment of the Uyghurs. Four members of the alliance have condemned China over this. They've also expressed concern over China's activities in the South China Sea, its suppression of democracy in Hong Kong and its threats to Taiwan. So that's all of the Five Eyes except New Zealand. Why is this? Arthur, you're our foreign and security desk. What's, what's actually going on here? Well, specifically in the case of New Zealand, uh, for all that it has a wonderful prime minister in Jacinda Ardern, you know, she's a beacon of kind of progressive policy. New Zealand is a small country that is incredibly heavily reliant on trade with China, with which it has successfully concluded a quite ambitious uh, trade arrangement. And they've made a judgment that they can't afford to piss off the Chinese. And if you look at what's happening with Australia at the moment, where China is boycotting quite a lot of Australian products. To some extent, you can see where the argument comes from. Just rolling it back a little bit, what exactly is Five Eyes? It's, it's been described as the world's most successful intelligence alliance. It's, the, it's very much Anglosphere, focuses on sharing intelligence. What's it all about? So the Five Eyes is, yes, it's an intelligence alliance of, of the, the five countries, USA, Canada, Australia, Britain and New Zealand, clearly all English-speaking countries countries that came out of World War II having been very strong allies. And they basically cooperate. The the main area of cooperation is in the field of signals intelligence. So that's GCHQ, NSA. That's the stuff about intercepting phone calls and emails and other things. But they also cooperate in in other other areas as well. It has been going for many decades. As I say, it's sort of mostly from from, from the end of World War II and and ramping up over the years. And it does create a very powerful, and if you think of the geography, a global network. And so it is is a significant significant entity. But it is very much an operational intelligence network. So the, the attempt to try to move it more into a kind of political sphere is something that's rather newer. Is it is it uh, is it serious for the Five Eyes? Is it something that could be could drive a wedge between these allies? Well, here's the interesting thing. If you think of the history, let's take the example of the Iraq War. Uh, you know, two thousand and three, the Canadians took a pretty firm stance against involvement in the Iraq War at a time when, of course, there was a lot of rancor between the UK, France, the USA, and so on. Well, Canada never left the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes continued all the same. And, you know, over time, there have been these issues where actually the policies of each of the countries hasn't cohered. And yet the kind of operational cooperation has continued un, un, um, you know, uninterrupted. I mean, obviously, a kind of Atlanticist Anglosphere post-World War II, not European intelligence relationship is it's very much the Brexiteers happy place, isn't it? Yeah. And so I think that's what's going on here. After Brexit, Britain, this so-called global Britain, is desperately trying to find its new place in the world. And of course, the Anglosphere, as you say, is the happy place. It's the wet dream of people like Daniel Hannan. And particularly in <laughs> the context... That. <laughs> oh, that's a disgusting <laughs> phrase. And, and, and no one has to that. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but particularly in the context of intelligence, because intelligence is all about security. It's about spies. It's about James Bond. So it really kind of plays to a lot of people's uh, sort of personal kind of thwarted ambition. Uh, in in their own pathetic little lives, um, but the thing about 
the Five Eyes, as I've said, is it is basically an operational cooperation network, and it isn't political. So when these attempts to make it political, that's something that Britain is very keen on doing. And Dominic Raab, who I think fits very much in that slightly sort of thwarted manhood uh, category, (laughs) you can see why he wants to be standing astride something much bigger than just Britain on its own. But ultimately, it's actually, it's a very miscast concept because the other countries in the Five Eyes have no desire to form a weird kind of Anglosphere political union. But of course, the professionals, those uh, shady spies working away, they will be happy to continue working on their operations without anyone paying them much attention. So it's this attempt to drive it into a kind of foreign policy political sphere that I think is, is doomed to failure. Rob is very, is very much a kind of a, uh, an Alan Partridge figure, isn't he? Probably reads quite a lot of Tom Clancy. Um, I'm which... sure he does, and and you know he's he, he's obviously got his black belt in karate, and and uh, you know is a fearsome figure by by all accounts. Mm. How, how do you think this one's going to play out? If uh, if as long as we can keep you know Dom away from uh, things with acronyms and control rooms and so on. Well, I think that. The way a lot of these things play out, all countries now and then have some bright idea which they want lots of other people to join in with. I mean, let's not forget that President Sarkozy of France in his day had an idea for a sort of whole new thing, a bit like the United Nations focused on the Mediterranean, the union of the Mediterranean. And and that, you know, never went anywhere in the end. And I think that there's a degree to which, you know, diplomacy involves people being rather polite to each other. So people will say, nice things to Dominic Raab and say, yes, it's a very interesting proposal and let's have a meeting. I don't think it'll go anywhere. <laughs> it'll run into the sand. Uh, and meanwhile, the, the practical cooperation w- will continue at that operational level. I'm just amazed that Five Eyes hasn't found its way into the lexicon, like, you know, Soros and 5G and, uh, you know, New World Order. It sounds like it should I'm, be... I'm amazed that, that it hasn't been a Bond title yet. Five Eyes. 007, <laughs> meet the Five Eyes. Well, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential material here. I mean, I I do think there's something interesting about this sort of Anglosphere concept because for all that you know, it fills me with with a, a lot of kind of misery and disdain. There are a lot of people now who you know on the right side of politics seem to think that this is something that could be pushed, something that could be um, expanded. So maybe we'll hear more about this kind of stuff in future years. But, I mean, let's not make any assumptions about how Australians and Canadians, particularly French Canadians, feel about this. That was Snell, Arthur Snell. (laughs) (laughs) He always runs when others walk. Now, good news, everyone. Citation needed. Britain <laughs> is supposedly on course for its biggest economic boom since 1948, according to Barclays Chief Executive Jez Staley. You may remember that after, in 1948, it was just right after a war, but never mind that. The bank's modelling predicts 6.5% growth this year as tremendous pent-up demand is released following the gradual unlocking of shops, cafes, pubs and other retail. Staley said spending was already up 70% during the first two weeks of April year on year. Of course, a year ago, everything was shut, but... There you go. So what does it all mean? Where is that growth going to happen and who's going to benefit from it? Miata is, of course, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, the clues in the name. Miata, the Bank of England's Andrew Bailey suggested that we're in for a 1920-style post-COVID spending boom. Is this really likely to happen, do you think? 
So I, I think the, the Bank of England and actually some of the modelling um, in some of the banks has probably been a bit more bullish and optimistic than the reality. Remember, they, they were talking about a kind of V-shaped recovery would all be fine now. And I think there's a bit of that baked in. I think what we will see is that we will see an uptick in uh, GDP growth. But below that number, we'll see a lot of pain in the country. Um, and even if you look at the you know, OBR's Office of Budget Responsibility Zone forecast, you know, average wages are not expected to get back to 2008 levels until 2026. And for me, this comes back to the fundamental point. It's fine. You can have growth. It means absolutely nothing if people at the middle and people at the bottom are still being hugely squeezed. So I think, you know, the economic story that will be told is two halves. We will have the GDP figures driven uh, by investment from a small number of people. And then we'll have a lot of lot of economic pain on the ground. That is an astonishing projection that you just mentioned there. So it's, it's going to be 18 years before wages from 2008 to when they'll return to the same level in real terms. It's absolutely incredible. We've never had anything in recent uh, history, uh, which is, you know, it's really profound. Uh, so all of that pain of the last decade is about to be carried through uh, into the middle of this uh, decade coming. I mean, it's incredible. And the idea that, that all of that can happen and there isn't some sort of rupture, I think is impossible. And I think what's really worrying is because the headline GDP figures will look good the government won't take the challenge on the ground seriously enough. Which brings me to, to the, the, the question I just raised, really, which is that, you know, can, can you really have a boom if it's not landing amongst people's own experiences? I mean, you, you're right, you'll see big figures, but you know, what are the kind of jobs that are not going to come back? And I know, I know the, the New York Economics Foundation's done a lot of work on this stuff. If we're looking at a boom led by retail, discretionary spending, and possibly housing as well, Shouldn't that flow back into the sort of, as you were saying, foundational jobs that would refloat an economy like ours? You would imagine, but actually I think retail is about to take a hit, in part because the shift to online has been accelerated. So, you know, if you're thinking about sectors where we will see structural unemployment, so we will see after furlough has gone and it shakes out, we will see, you know, job losses that sustain themselves. I think retail is there. Um, I think the second is with actually more people opting to work uh, from home, all of that sort of city centre hospitality, um, as well as uh, retail, I think will take it. And then the final is transport and aviation, uh, because, you know, even when restrictions removed, you're talking about a long period in which travel is going to be hugely restricted. Now, for me, that's a transition that needed to happen anyway, but it will have long-term impacts on unemployment. And this is why we are desperately saying to the government, whatever you do, do not just cut furlough. There's got to be a transitional scheme because the economy is in transition. That means that you can help people move from the jobs that are declining to the jobs that hopefully you're creating, particularly in the context of the kind of green recovery they talk about, and you try and manage that transition. So, you know, you get people into part-time work with the state subsidising it, uh, you upskill them in the hours that they're not working, and then you help them move into new sectors. And unless they do that, the long-term pain of a pandemic that's going to have, you know, reverberations long before, long after the economy opens up, I think will be really, really tough. So if we're looking at large GDP growth in terms of percentage figures, and yet all of those industries and sectors that you just described, retail, hospitality, city centre-based stuff are in decline, what are the sectors that you imagine are going to grow? I mean, we, we can't exactly grow an economy on, you know, uh, selling athleisure wear via Uniqlo and Deliveroo stuff can we there, there, there have there has to be significant areas that would grow to provide for those figures 
Yeah, so I think we'll see, you know, a big boost in professional services, uh, financial sector, other professional services that have done been pretty buoyant actually through the pandemic. I suspect there's probably more growth to come, although I think the financial sector will probably lower than it would have been uh, because of uh, Brexit. You know, I think we'll see, you know, big asset inflation. Uh, that, that's kind of been our model of growth for a very long time. Housing boom, asset boom that artificially drives up growth figures, but in truth doesn't benefit people. Um, and I think those will be the kind of two big drivers. It's not really the kind of thing that you're going to notice in, for instance, Hartlepool. No, and that is their challenge. And that is their challenge, which which is why, you know, going back to the top of the show, I, I think they will rethink the economic model, you know, because you can't just grow the economy in the way that we have done in the past. Hope that if you do a bit of infrastructure spend, if you have a bit of asset inflation and you generate those GDP figures, that's enough and it will trickle down into people's jobs and it'll trickle down into higher wages and living standards. The last 10 years has showed us that does not work. And I think that is what will force them to match the rhetoric with their action, um, the realities of that. It's part of the, I mean, not that I'm trying to sort of solve Boris Johnson's problems for him, but it's part of the issue there that what you just described, you know, a bit of infrastructure spending and so forth might not work, but it's easily understood politically, whereas the solution that you've described would work, but is extremely hard to describe politically. Yeah, I mean, a bridge or a bus shelter is is very visible. Um, I Mm. think the challenge that the government has uh, twofold on infrastructure is infrastructure investment takes a long time to materialize in terms of jobs. Uh, There will be construction jobs in the short term, but actually for it to benefit others in a community, it just takes time. And, you know, when they're talking about big road schemes or, you know, big rail schemes, yeah, they take about 10 to 20 years to materialize. So the short term uh, necessity of politics, I think, will mean that they start thinking about other things, you know, and we're banging on about social infrastructure, which we're delighted that Biden has now included in his definition of infrastructure, which takes you to investing in people and skills, investing in things like care, uh, because they are critical uh, for our local economies to function. They're the things that we all need. And I think that short termism will mean that they start thinking about, well, actually, what are our quick wins? You know, something like energy efficiency, where we know we can create jobs really quickly. We know we can skill people up into those jobs really quickly. And you know those jobs can be distributed across the country because houses that need to be decarbonized and buildings that need to decarbonize are everywhere. Uh, And uh, those are the sorts of things that we think we can persuade them uh, that they should be putting money into in order to generate those jobs that they can skill people up to take up quickly. So what does this mean politically? Governments tend to prosper in boom times. So I think boom periods tend to favour governments, but I think that's traditional boom periods. And actually, if if we think about the last 10 years, the narrative that opposition parties and Labour in particular started to push that got traction is that the economy doesn't work for the many, it works for the few. So yes, you can, the economy might be growing, but who's benefiting it? And I think as long as they take it to that, because the truth will be the boom that we're about to see will benefit the few, uh, unless the government fundamentally changes the model, that will resonate because everyone will be feeling a lot of pain. People will know other people that are feeling that it's tough. And so if the government's banging on about how rosy it is, but actually people on the ground aren't feeling it, it makes them look out of touch. And it breeds a lot of political anger that I think the opposition, if it then says there is a better way and here is a vision and here's what we could do, could potentially capitalise on it. So I don't think the boom is generally banked for the government. I think it's all to play for, but it does require an opposition that can actually 
articulate a vision and an alternative and say what it's going to do and also be very, very good at prosecuting the argument that just because those numbers say it's all fine, you you know and you are feeling that it's not fine. And and that that's the argument that they need to make. Can I add something? We tend to talk about the economy, about markets doing X and sectors doing Y. But uh, as an economics professor of mine once described it, what you're actually looking at is a murmuration of starlings, which are moving in one direction and then another, and and they make shapes and they make pattern, but they're really a combination, a nexus of tiny individual decisions. And in that sense, uh, talking about an oncoming boom is part of making it happen. It's, you know, it's one of those weird things that in, in an economy that depends on consumer confidence, on, on investor confidence, on, on business confidence, actually, tr- you know, boosting the rhetoric can help the economy recover. So when you hear about a 70% sort of bounce compared to April 2020, well, yes, but April 2020 was 40% down from April 2019. And actually, in real terms, we've just gone back to spending exactly the same as we were spending in April 2019. So we're treading water, but it sounds impressive. And that sounding impressive is part, weirdly, of an economic recovery. But I think Miata is absolutely spot on when she says that that can, that can create a sort of cognitive dissonance. The more strong this recovery rhetoric becomes and the more people notice that they have less money in their pocket and that the supermarket uh, shop is more expensive, the more it will create actually dissatisfaction about where is my slice of the pie. If everything's going so brilliantly, why am I poor? And that can sort of backfire politically. Finally, in an edition that's been all about the former Red Wall and spreading prosperity out of the southeast, what if it went in exactly the opposite direction and drove London to become one of the world's foremost mega cities? What if instead of exporting government departments and possibly the headquarters of the Labour Party outside of London, we encouraged the capital to grow far beyond its current size and its current economic power? A mega city is defined as a conurbation with more than 10 million inhabitants, densely populated, intricately connected both to its own neighbourhoods and internationally, and exceptionally productive. They include the Tokyo region with 37 million people or Shanghai with 27 million inhabitants. London's population could reach 11 million by 2050 should we grow it even more. We have an expert proponent for this wild idea. My name's Tony Travers from uh, the London School of Economics. I'm a professor in the School of Public Policy with a long-term interest in subnational government and urban policy. And my uh, wild idea is that London should actively seek to become a mega city. I mean, it's already a very big city, but not quite the mega city by global standards that we begin to see developing in China, India, and some parts of Latin America. I think London ought to plan for that kind of future. Well, we should expand London really to recognise something that has already happened. I mean, we tend to think about London as the nine million people inside the greater London administrative boundary. But actually, London already affects 
Reading and Milton Keynes and Brighton and South End and areas well beyond that, in fact, across an area of 21 or 22 million. So it would actually be recognising a reality that's already there. If we look at the places that you could include in this wider London, I mean, certainly places that directly adjoin London, like Slough or Dartford, Watford, although uh, some of them I think would be pretty resistant to this. So I I get the fact that people who live outside the London boundary probably wouldn't necessarily be over enthusiastic about it. All I'm doing is talking here about recognising a reality that, you know, there are places where one house next door to another in an urban area, one is in London, one isn't, and that the economies of these places are joined. And even places much further out, such as Reading and Brighton, are undoubtedly within the orbit of London's economy and more joint planning and joint government between areas even that far out would also make sense. I think many people would argue against this proposition. They'd say, well, surely London and its region is already so dominant within the United Kingdom that this would simply further exaggerate the power of the London super region or mega city region as compared with areas which the government is currently trying to level up. There is something in that argument, but we must remember that growth is not a zero-sum game. It's quite possible to have other parts of the UK growing, perhaps even faster than they used to, while London still develops. You know, there isn't a fixed amount of growth, a fixed amount of jobs, a fixed amount of anything, frankly, within the UK. So I think it is possible to imagine enhancing and expanding London, but without, and doing it in, as I keep saying, in a planned way, and that doesn't have to be at the expense of the rest of the country, providing they too have their own sensible planning and investment policies. Miata, you're a lifelong Londoner. It's been taken as read that London's prosperity means the rest of the country plays second fiddle. Does that have to be the case? Could a a drastically expanded London actually power the rest of the country more than it does now? No, it doesn't have to be the case. I don't think it's a zero-sum game. And actually, across the world, we have successful, you know, primary cities and then other parts of the country and other cities that are, you know, equally successful. I am a bit sceptical, though, about the kind of the mega city. It would be definitely a model for economic growth. I suspect that what you would have is all the kind of governance, all the kind of sense of place and identity that's really hard to hold in London, I think becomes much, much harder to hold in such a big conurbation. And so, you know, I definitely think that London can continue to grow and prosper as well as other places. But I think it probably needs to be a slightly more distributed model. Well, I mean, the the one thing everybody knows about London is that it is a collection of villages. It's a collection of towns that have agglomerated together. And I was just thinking, you know, not that I'm intimately, you know, full of knowledge about Tokyo, but of all the places in the world, I thought London is the one best suited to expanding into an even wider collection of, 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 of villages and towns. You know, could you see a single authority governing everywhere from Luton to Brighton? Well, Luton and Brighton are their own places, but they could be part of something larger and in fact what Tony Travers is just saying there is they already are really you know so to treat it as a single place with its own kind of integrated transport and its own you know to, to recognize it's one big economy could could possibly work I don't know could you see that happening a tempting prize for Count Binface mayor of <laughs> mega London <laughs> 
I could see it happening because there are huge kind of economic um, links between all those different places. I mean, but 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 it would be a pretty unruly um, area to govern and govern well. And you know, even within London as it is now, you know, think about the huge disparities we have between the fortunes of Lewisham versus the fortunes of the city of London. The bigger your size, the harder it is to grapple with all of that. But that doesn't stop, if you like, the natural economic connections between the areas that are fundamentally linked into London anyway. It doesn't stop that from happening. But whether you then turn it into a, a massive state, which is essentially what it would be, I think is another matter. Alex, do you think it's a good idea to think in terms of expanding megacities uh, when London is being hollowed out by COVID anyway? I mean, city centres are not what they were 18 months ago. So should we be thinking mm. instead of rather than sprawling them out and bringing in, you know, making making it a larger area with a large population, that we should actually be making city centres themselves denser and more livable and not purely de- purely dedicated to this model of retail that's kind of evaporating? I, I'm not sure that it's COVID that's just COVID that's Mm. hollowed out London. I think um, all these conversations, including about London becoming a mega city, including about the economy bouncing back, about a boom uh, in the next few years, they ignore one really key factor, which is population. We're getting loads of disparate data that suggests there's been a big population move away from the UK, actually, and that it's not a hugely attractive place for people to be coming into. I think COVID was the the peril in many ways that made everyone want to go back home. But I think what preceded it was a decade during which migrants were made to feel like this wasn't home. Mm. If this had felt like home, no one would, you know, feel the need to flee to somewhere that they consider safer. I think you have to solve that part of the conundrum. It's all very well talking about, you know, expanding London into a mega city of uh, 10 million. But where where is that 10 million coming from? And how do you get the rest of England, who is incredibly uh, worried about Im- immigration, even in or especially in places that have very little immigration, how do you get them to approve that as a political choice? Because there is a political choice. You know, in order to expand all these things, you have to actively advertise this country as a place that that welcomes immigration. I can't see that happening politically right now. I suppose what the argument would be, and it wouldn't be one I'd make myself, but that what you do is you make London more attractive to the rest of the country and the, the kind of burning resentment of the rest of the country towards London is something that that you address and you start to say that London is not an alien place. It is it is your capital sure. and you connect London to the rest of the country better with better transport and you more or less uh, expand the kind of the, the dormitory belt and the commuter belt way beyond, you know, outside of London to beyond Birmingham. Sure, but, the, but, then, but then what you do is, you know, you do what uh, Miata said shouldn't be the case and what Tony Travers says shouldn't be the case. You make this into a zero-sum game. So in order to grow London, you hollow, you hollow out other areas of the country. That's not a good strategy, especially at the moment. Or do you say that the prosperity of London is something that should be closer to you and that if you live in Manchester or Liverpool, you should regard London as 
you know, almost a part of your own economic world. And it's only an hour and a half away. I don't personally disagree with any of those arguments. I'm an urban creature. Mm. You know, I go, I go away to the country and I can't sleep because it's too quiet. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the disproportionate political attention that marginal seats in the home counties get and marginal seats in the north get, which are very anti-immigration at the moment, will they wear that? I'm not sure they will. So I don't disagree with the plan. Mm. I, th I think it's a terrific idea. I think we should invite as many talented people as, as possible to come to this country um, because that's effectively the engine to growth, especially in a country with a sort of naturally declining population. But what I'm saying is, Will the country wear it politically? Is it practical? I don't, I'm not sure that it is. Well, as a traitor northerner who's lived in London for 30 odd years, I, I'm sort of, my experience of London is it's full of everybody but Londoners. Everybody's here from every part of the world. And yet, outside of London, there is still the resentment towards it. It might be full of Mancunians, Welsh, Scots, Scousers, Brummies, and people from every European country and every non-European country, but all the people in the rest of the country look at it and go, it's not like us for some reason. It's a city states. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, this is my theory for the future. I think we will see the emergence of city states. We will see the uncoupling of large cities which have had the political choices of countryside and leafy suburbs Im imposed on them while generating much of the tax revenue that subsidizes the rest of the country but have had their political choices imposed on them i think you will see them schism away at some point in the future i think it's inevitable well i'm, I'm terribly excited about it just because megacities are science fiction but obviously alex you, <laughs> I, I, I foresee you know 300 story megablocks with my name on them you, you, you want howl's moving castle don't you um arthur yes. i need to bring you in on behalf of rural britain because the big thing we haven't mentioned is a green belt, which surrounds and constrains London. Is this effectively about kind of phasing out the green belt and accepting that if you want affordable housing for an economic powerhouse in your country, if you want economic growth, London is going to have to expand so that we sort of need a yes in my backyard on a national scale? Well, I certainly think, you know, the, the green belt is a bit ridiculous. And of course, if you look into it, lots of people, you say green belt and we imagine the lovely places around London that people might go for a walk like Box Hill in Surrey or something. But most of the green belt is either boring golf courses or very, very uninteresting fields where <laughs> completely pointless farming takes place. There's no need to operate a farm 20 miles from central London now that we have motorized transport. So I've, I've got no particular passion for the green belt, but it's easy for me to say that because I checked this, I live 108 miles from the center of London. And so therefore, that London's going to become very mega before it reaches where I am. But I think, you know, there, there seems to me there's a wider point here. And, and, and perhaps, a, you know, at the risk of sort of pro provoking a, a debate with Alex, you know, the, it is absolutely true, of course, that much more, you know, economic growth is generated by cities like London. But if someone wanted to start investing in public transport where I live, then, you know, we might be able to generate a little bit more economic dynamism of our own. So I think, you know, you... My, my concern about the London megacity idea is that although it's perfectly possible that it wouldn't have to be to the detriment of other regions, I think the nature of politics in this country is such that things tend to get concentrated where the power is.
Well, my dream is that the London Underground will link up with Merseyrail, and you'll be able to get on at uh, <laughs> be able to get on at Euston and pop out in the your dream our night Liverpool Central <laughs> on a Saturday night. It'd be wonderful. So we've come to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for our panel's escape routes from politics. What are the TV, films, music, books or miscellaneous that they're going to be enjoying on the enormously extended northern line that goes all the way to Piccadilly, Manchester? Miata, what's, what TV, films, books and stuff has been filling your spare time? Uh, so I've taken up running. I've started running. I'm, I'm a fair weather runner. I run when it's sunny. Um, but it's been great and it's about... 40 minutes where I can't, because I'm so exhausted, think about anything, particularly politics. Uh, so, yeah, that's been my thing. You know what's good for running? Podcasts. Very yeah. good for running. <laughs> <laughs> to escape from your escape. Arthur, how about you? Well, I, I thought I'd start, you know, like everybody else, I'd, I'd watch The Pursuit of Love, the you know, BBC <laughs> um, uh, adaptation. And I gave up after about 10 minutes because it was just so ridiculous. It was supposed to be taking place in Christmas time. And everyone was, it was clearly midsummer when they'd filmed it, completely inexplicable. So I then turned, because I had in my mind, I had the desire to watch a sort of slightly spiky, funny, cynical period drama. So I turned to uh, Decline and Fall, which you can find on uh, Amazon Prime Video, which was made, I think, about five years ago, which is everything that Pursuit of Love wasn't. It was funny. It was sort of understated. It was cynical. And of course, it's based on a, a brilliant book by Evelyn Moore. Decline and Fall is great. I was furiously annoyed by The Pursuit of Love. And even as an absolute pleb, even I know that you can't go to a British stately home pile and get out of the bath and just loll around in a towel in, in winter. You will die of frostbite. Absolutely. It's minus five. I mean, yeah. you know, it, just, it was really weird. And, and I can't work out, you know, what, why, why it came out that way. But anyway, Decline and Fall, lots of fun. Yes, I pursuit of love, very non-you. Alex, how about you? What have you been escaping uh, so Can I, can I uh, have a, a film end a series? Yes, you can. Is Go that on. all right? Okay, all right. So I've been catching up with the latest season of Unforgotten, which is a bloody brilliant bit of TV. It's sort of everything that Line of Duty wants to be but is not grown up enough to be. An astounding central performance by Nicola Walker, who is just uncomfortable to be in the same room with, even though she's on screen. Um, absolutely brilliant. And if you haven't seen any of it and you like police procedural dramas, then are you in for a treat? And I also watched Promising Young Woman, which is a fucking incredible... It's crazy, isn't it? Um, incredible directorial and script screenwriting debut by Emerald Fennell with a central performance by, by um, Carrie Mulligan that is just astounding. Weirdly, I was thinking of you, Andrew, because it's effectively in its dramatic arc to go back to um, the beginning of the podcast. It is a superhero movie. It's basically a superhero film. Well, we did it on our companion podcast, Big Mouth, and it's, it is a film that lives in your head for a long time. And yeah, partic wonderful. particularly the kind of fin the, the finale, and which raises a whole load of questions. Um, but yes, it is, it, it's a superhero thing. Mine is uh, St. Vincent's new album, Daddy's Home, which is an addition 
to the very small genre of albums about people whose dads are in jail or have just been released from jail. St. Vincent, the fantastic Baroque, strange pop star, we have just learned her father has just got out of jail for nine years for $43 million stock fraud. This is not something that's common in the world of, of, of pop music. Uh, and it's inspired this album by, by, um, by Annie Clark, which kind of delves into not just what it's like to have this strange secret in the family, but also to kind of go back to her own teenage years and the music that she listened to when her family was kind of intact and, and hadn't been invaded by this, 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 you know, by this strange and, you know, destructive course of action that her father took. It's seventies funk, it's soul, it's pop. It's also kind of lounge music and that kind of extremely seedy mid seventies thing, a bit like the carpet has gone to seed. And it's just fantastic. It's absolutely riveting and it's out on Friday. And I recommend it to all of you. Daddy's home by St. Vincent. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Miata Farnbolly. Thank you for joining us, Miata. Oh, thanks for having me. Always good to have you here. Come back soon. Thank you to Arthur Snell. Thanks for having me. And thank you to Alex Andreo. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever your favourite app is. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms. News is coming next week about the next one, so sign up now and you'll be the first to know. Backers, of course, get an honorary shout on the show, and here are some now. Hello, and best wishes from me to Marcus Holler, Paul Armstrong and Thomas Parker. Best wishes from me to John Lott, Near Knight and Robert Stevenson. And a big bear hug from me to Mark Bailey, Sarah Dorman and Dave Holm. Finally, thanks from me to Marcus Weston, Tracy Ballard and Fab Jan. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Miata Farnbuller, Arthur Snell and Alexandre. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Losofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.